we took these sampling approaches from the lab and then we scaled it up to sampling in the field and evolved from the ground-based sampling so that we could actually access higher intensity fires, the types of fires that you wouldn't want to stand your graduate students anywhere near. Um, so we, uh, we developed a system that was lightweight enough that we could put it on a UAS or a drone, an unmanned aircraft system. And now we sample using drones and we fly the drones into the smoke columns and measure at different distances from the combustion zone to see how things change as the smoke ages and as we travel away from the combustion source and at different heights above the combustion zone to see how high up these organisms go. Meet Lita Kovziar, an associate professor in the Department of Natural Resources and Society at the University of Idaho. In recent years, many people living in the western U.S. have coughed through numerous unpleasant summer days during wildfire season. Lita has discovered that, in addition to the particulate matter making us cough, wildfire smoke actually contains living microbes, something scientists have never known. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. everyone, my name is Lee Cooper and I'm a science writer here at the University of Idaho and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at U of I. Throughout the fourth season of the podcast, which we're recording and producing remotely, we'll talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. Lita and I discussed what living microbes in wildfire smoke might mean for human health, the spread of plant diseases, and the evolution of microbes on our planet. Hi, Lita. Thank you so much for coming on the Vandal Theory podcast today. Can you introduce yourself to everybody real quick? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Lita Kobziar, and I am an associate professor of wildland fire science here at the University of Idaho. And you are here to talk to us basically about a brand new type of science called pyroaerobiology. And first off, can we just, can we just explain what that is? Yeah, so pyroaerobiology is kind of the term we've been using to describe this thing, which is really an integration of existing sciences, including fire ecology, atmospheric science or smoke science, and microbiology. So those are usually kind of disparate disciplines. And so we needed a way to converse about it because the things that we started to discover when we put those three disciplines together seem to be really interesting. So when you're saying smoke, what we're talking about is wildfires, or at least forest fires, even if they're man-made. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there's biomass burning smoke um, all over the world, and that can include fires that are used for cooking purposes. But what we're really focused on are fires that occur on wildlands. And the amount of material that that type of fire emits to the atmosphere on a yearly basis is astonishingly high. And, and as most people know, it's increasing in many places in the world. So we see about 90 million pounds of particulate matter per year in the U.S. from prescribed fires and wildfires, as an example. And so we wanted to understand a little bit better about what was in that smoke. So you were looking in the smoke for microbes. Why did you ask that question? And what did you find out? Yeah, it's a strange story. Actually, I was um, on a prescribed burn and I had recently gotten an article from a friend about the way that bacteria were added to snowmaking machines in order to condense ice. 
So the presence of the bacteria and the protein on their cells actually allows for ice formation to occur in a vaporized state when the temperatures are higher than in background conditions. So I started to think, well, if bacteria are doing that in ice making machines, maybe they're doing something like that in smoke. And so I just started to wonder if there was anything living in smoke. And I looked into the literature and there was only one paper that showed that there was a correlation from distant smoke and the number of fungal spores that were found in the air. And this was a really neat study done by a father-daughter team when the daughter was only in high school, but unfortunately no one followed up on it. And so I found a a willing graduate student and um, we started sampling on the line and taking Petri dishes and holding them up to smoke to determine whether anything would grow on the Petri dishes and whether it changed at different distances from the combustion source. So what did you end up finding? Yeah, so what we found was that closest to the fire and decreasing as we moved away from the fire, we saw a tremendous diversity and number of communities that grew, and these would be colony-forming units on nutrient agar. And so we saw both fungi and bacteria growing and um, identified some of them and basically just you know showed that the concept was true, that, that the combustion environment is emitting microbial life and that this microbial content um, is capable of reproducing after it's captured. So it's certainly not being cooked or destroyed to such an extent that it can't continue uh, reproducing following capture. So I know when I heard about this, my mind kind of blew up trying to follow all the thought processes of what could this mean? First off, how off is this compared to what we were thinking? And then what are some of the avenues that potentially could be studied now that you know that there's living microbes in smoke? Well, what it uh, opens up for us is understanding that the perimeter of a wildland fire um, in terms of its biological impact is definitely not limited to what we normally think of the outline of a wildfire being. And you know, this phenomenon has probably been going on as long as fire has been on Earth. So we're talking about hundreds of trillions of years that fire has probably been influencing the world in this way as acting kind of like a microbial volcano, or or you can even think of it as a, a conveyor belt of microbial life. And with the amount of fire that we see on the landscape, especially today and the types of fires that we see that are very high intensity, We know that there's likely a tremendous concentration of these organisms being transported as well. So it changes the way that we think about fire's role on Earth. It changes the way that we think about fire's effect on atmospheric processes. So there's um, ample evidence that organisms that are in background air conditions are metabolizing. So they're interacting with their environment. They may even be reproducing in some cases, depending on the organism and the conditions. They are interacting with atmospheric processes, so they are acting as ice nucleating particles, and that's one thing that we've also discovered in this work so far. So they could change things like cloud formation and obviously have impacts on weather. And then finally, the transport of these organisms might include things that have relevance for human health. We found about a thousand different organisms so far. So it's hard to generalize, you know, exactly what each of them do, but many of them are organisms that can cause things like, you know, asthmatic um, reactions, 
And we're looking further into what the potential health consequences might be, looking specifically at different locations where we know that there are organisms in soil that cause respiratory ailments. So the effects of what we've learned so far, the, the repercussions, impact the fields of understanding infectious disease spread and epidemiology. And then that also extends to understanding plant and crop health and pathogens that might affect um, plants or crops and atmospheric processes, and then just overall biodiversity. So I think maybe one thing to, to mention, I know it's often easy to think microbes, bad, unhealthy, bring disease, but that's not necessarily true. Obviously, some microbes cause you know things like human disease and, and plant disease, but some are not quote unquote bad. Absolutely, yeah, that's really important to keep in mind. And so that's you know when we think about the implications of this as fire um, being a, a promoter of biodiversity, that also means that these organisms that you know if we just measure before and after a fire in a particular location. And it looks like fire has killed um, a bunch of microbial life that is critical for nutrient cycling, critical for plant health, you know, critical for processing nitrogen to make it available for growth and for life. It might look like all of those things are being reduced by the reduction of the abundance of microbes in, in soils, for example. But what might really be happening is that these organisms or a good percentage of them are being translocated to downwind locations. So, you know, as long as a, an area isn't burning over and over and over again in a very short time period, there is either time for recovery of, of these communities or um, inoculation from other fires blowing wind into those areas that have been burned. So we have an interesting hypothesis, which is that it might be that smoke is kind of a temporary refuge for microbiota. But, you know, these are the things that our upcoming work is going to try to unravel and try to test. So tell me a little bit more about the farming and how some of this could affect plant crops. Is it the fact that some farming techniques do involve burning slash or something like that? Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of crop harvesting techniques that are followed by burning. And, you know, again, that returns some nutrients to the soil. And then there are some practices like in sugarcane, for example, where crops are actually burned prior to the harvesting to kind of reduce the amount of excess non-usable material from the plant. Um, and that also, of course, emits a lot of smoke. And then there are fires that may uh, not necessarily be set on purpose. So you might also consider um, timber to be a crop. And if you do think of it that way, there are many organisms that affect forest health. And uh, a lot of those organisms are, are fungal. And the transport of those organisms is something we know very little about. There are some organisms that have caused the death of many hundreds of thousands of trees. And we don't know anything about whether fire is actually transporting those organisms. Oftentimes, when forestry control measures are taken, the materials are cut down and then burned with the goal of reducing and eliminating that pathogen. But we haven't measured yet whether that burning itself may actually be transporting that pathogen. So a lot of questions remain. So you figured out that these microbes were in the smoke a couple of summers ago. Since then, what experiments have you done and what were you trying to learn in these experiments? 
We've conducted a lot of different types of experiments. And the reason that we needed to do so many is because there was no methodology already developed for this type of sampling. There are bioaerosol sampling techniques, but they vary a lot and none of them involve sampling fires. So one of the things that we had to do is figure out what kind of equipment we could use that would be safe um, on a fire and that wouldn't melt um, <laughs> while we were using it. So some really practical considerations to start. And then we wanted to compare out of those options what kind of results we got um, if we could find the most effective methods possible. So we did a lot of work at the University of Idaho iFire Lab um, with combustion experiments indoors. And one of the things that we wanted to look at was how different types of fuels contributed different types of microbial communities. So we hypothesized, of course, that because there are different communities that live on different things and live in different materials, that whatever is burning is going to affect what you get in the smoke. Um, and so we found that to be true. And we also found that the, the type of combustion really matters. So whether it's a smoldering fire or a flaming fire, that also impacts what kind of organisms we get. We didn't see really clear trends, but we saw differences. And that means that in order to understand this phenomenon at a landscape scale and to be able to go forward and make any predictions, we, we also need to pay a lot of attention to fire behavior and to exactly what fuels are being consumed. You know, if a fire in one location creates a microbial community that has a set of characteristics, we can't assume that th that set of characteristics will be the same for another location. We took these sampling approaches from the lab and then we scaled it up to sampling in the field and evolved from the ground-based sampling so that we could actually access higher intensity fires, the types of fires that you wouldn't want to stand your graduate students anywhere near. Um, so we, uh, we developed a system that was lightweight enough that we could put it on a UAS or a drone, an unmanned aircraft system. And now we sample using drones and we fly the drones into the smoke columns and measure at different distances from the combustion zone to see how things change as the smoke ages and as we travel away from the combustion source and at different heights above the combustion zone to see how high up these organisms go and whether they reach the, the boundary layer and whether they are going to be transported um, near or far. And we also measure over different seasons to try to understand how the phenological differences between the plants and the microbes that they have growing in and on them affect what we see in the smoke. So we're kind of attacking it from all angles, just trying to understand both the mechanism that explains these processes, and then also to get a better conception of what the boundaries are of the variability in the results that we get with regards to microbial communities in smoke. Well, so talk to me about what you're finding so far. I mean, are they going the full distance uh, through the, for the smoke? They are going a far distance, but we don't know how far yet. So that is one of the questions that we still have. If we apply existing atmospheric models to predict how far they would go based on the sizes that we've measured them to be, they can travel as far as a smoke plume can travel. But whether or not they remain alive while they're traveling is uh, an open question. That's certainly something we need to learn more about. And then how far they travel, of course, is going to relate to the strength of the convective lift um, and then atmospheric conditions and weather conditions. 
surrounding a wildfire are going to have a big impact on how far they travel. So often science is about uh, baby steps. We know all of these different things, but we don't know that one little thing over there. We're going to go take what we know and, and make an experiment to go learn that one new thing. You have blown open a door that we didn't know was there and now can tackle any number of questions. Is it freeing to have that? Overwhelming? That's such a good question. You know, it's a responsibility, I think is how it feels. It's exciting. And, you know, I gain a lot of satisfaction from every single thing that that we learn along the way. But because it's so new, you know, that also makes me feel very cautious about anything that we discover. Because, you know, it it hasn't been tested by anyone else yet. And that's happening. It's starting to happen now. And that's really exciting. But that means that I feel like we have to do everything uh, three times before we can say anything about what we're finding, just to be sure. And to be really conservative about what we what we're hypothesizing and then what we know. You know, at this point in time, I feel like the discoveries that we've made have been really exciting, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, what we don't know is so much greater than what we do know. And in this case, it's the biggest iceberg that I've ever interacted with. So it's a, it's definitely inspiring, but it is a lot of responsibility and to make sure that, that we're doing it absolutely the best way possible. So that's why the development of the methodology and the testing of the methodology is really critical. And that's the kind of stuff that you know, doesn't necessarily get published in flashy journals, but it's probably more important than the actual results is making sure that the methods are are well substantiated. So what's been the response so far from, the, you know, the fire community and the, the microbial community? Um, the response has been really interesting. In general, the thing that I hear the most is, oh my goodness, I had absolutely no idea that was happening. And I never thought about smoke like that before. Huh. And that's kind of where it, <laughs> where it stops. Like, wait, what? Is that really happening? And then the other response that I've gotten a lot of is, oh, hey, that makes sense. That explains something I have experienced or somebody on my crew has experienced. So, you know, I've gotten a lot of anecdotal stories that just people out of the blue have contacted me and saying, you know, I got... I got this really strange infection in my lungs after being a smoke jumper for, you know, four years. And after this one really bad year where we were in the smoke the whole time, you know, I developed this weird infection. They couldn't tell me what it was, you know, those kinds of stories. So those are kind of the two different ways that people have responded, either just, you know, to marvel at the potential or to recognize that it corroborates something related to their own experiences. Well, so as we're going forward, I know we're seeing stronger fires and covering larger areas and fire season is lasting longer. Obviously, that is going to be critically tied to what you're studying. Are you seeing a lot of support for this then? Or, or how, how will that affect what you're doing? Well, hopefully it'll affect, you know, the number of people who are interested in, in joining us and doing this work. Um, And like I said, there are other teams who have started to work on this topic, too. And that has been really exciting with regards to, you know, things like finding funding for the work. You know, we we hope that that will um, continue to be a possibility, you know, so far because it's a 
strange, new, multidisciplinary type of topic, it has been hard to find the, the right funding agencies to, uh, to really support this, this line of inquisition. But we have recently gotten some funding and it's going to enable us to pursue you know, a couple of the different trajectories of questions that we have related to, to this basic phenomenon, but, but not all of them yet. But that's where we hope uh, other teams will get involved. So we're getting pretty close to the end here. Um, is there any last thing you want to leave the audience with, whether about pyroaerobiology itself or just about working in a science that didn't exist five years ago? Um, maybe I would just share that I, I think it's always a good idea to follow your curiosity, whether you're a scientist or not. You never know where it may lead. Even if it's just a very simple, basic question, it could lead to something that will give you more questions to enjoy answering for years going forward. And then the other thing I guess I would say is that uh, a lot of us who are trained in science is spend a lot of time focusing in on particular topics to become experts in them. And you know, this has certainly stretched my expertise and encouraged me, required me to grow as a thinker and as a scientist. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, and that's been a wonderful experience, if not a slightly intimidating one, but really worthwhile and very satisfying. All right. Well, Lita, thanks for coming on The Vandal Theory today. Thank you for having me. If you found yourself enjoying The Vandal Theory podcasts, I think you'll like listening to a new podcast from the University of Idaho's Project ECHO program. Project ECHO is an educational resource empowering healthcare professionals in Idaho's remote and underserved communities to treat chronic diseases with specialist-level expertise. All at Project Echo's Sam Steffen introduced their new podcast, Something for the Pain, which focuses on opioid and substance use disorder prevention, treatment, and recovery in rural Idaho. The opioid epidemic in America claimed 450,000 lives between 1999 and 2018. That means that in the last 20 years, more people have died from opioid overdoses than firearms or car accidents. The mortality, um, people are, you know, that are using opiates, it's, it's six times the general population. The sheer volume of stats and facts surrounding opioid use in America highlights the size of the problem. This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo in Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to learn best practices in the fight to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in communities across the state of Idaho. If you're a healthcare professional working with someone who is seeking treatment and recovery options for opioid addiction, or if you are a citizen interested in learning more about opioid and substance use disorder prevention, treatment, and recovery resources, Echo Idaho is here to help. By now you've seen the data in the per capita facts. The doctor-patient ratio in Idaho is next to last. In the rural list of places where the resources are scarce, they're calling Echo Idaho an answer to our prayers. Echo Idaho. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. 
Join us as we tune in to recorded lectures from the Echo Idaho Opioid and Substance Use Disorder Education Series Archives, delivered by Idaho's leading healthcare specialists, and interview Valley County experts to find out the latest trends, best practices, and existing resources for opioid and substance use disorder prevention, treatment, and recovery in rural Idaho. Whether you work in healthcare and want to claim continuing education credit, or live in Idaho and want to educate yourself about the facts, trends, and best practices around opioid and substance use disorder treatment, Something for the Pain has a little something for everybody. Something for the Pain is available for download now on the Echo Idaho website at www.uidaho.edu slash echo. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. You can visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory, to get more information about Lita's research, read our show notes, and email me with comments. We'd love it if you would subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. And please rate and review us, too. We've loved hearing from our listeners, and we really appreciate your support. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining us.